I'm Jay Miller, and on today's episode of George Fox Talks, I'm speaking with Ben Guidis about the environment, engineering, and how to slow down in a world that wants us to speed up. Hi, everyone. I'm Jay Miller, and on today's episode of George Fox Talks, I'm talking with my colleague, Ben Guidis. Ben is an associate professor of civil engineering here at George Fox University, and he published an essay online recently with Comment, um, and which is affiliated with Cardis. And the title of the essay is "Born Again Engineering: Evaluating Human Impact on Ecosystems." Uh, we'll get into that essay in a little bit. It has a very kind of engineering title, I think, in the second part at least, in evaluating impact. Um, and assessing that. But while Ben's uh, engineer by profession, I I feel in some ways like maybe more at heart, you're a fisherman, which is where you start this essay. So Ben, before we get into some of the engineering stuff, could you talk a little bit about fishing and how it got you thinking about some of the topics you explore here? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we all have multiple vocations and one of them for me is fly fisherman. Uh, I had a great opportunity last fall. I had I was on sabbatical uh, and I was able to travel up to Alaska to go on a salmon fishing trip. And there's this kind of sense when you're, uh, when you're fly fishing and you're in the wild and you're in a beautiful place. And this is all heightened when you're in Alaska and you've got bald eagles flying overhead and there's brown bear prints on the bank and salmon swimming past you, seals chasing them upstream that this is not man's domain this is god's domain and there's a there's sort of a rhythm to the place that if you want to be part of this and you want to enter into it and be successful you sort of have to attune to those rhythms and um so i was on on this trip and i was sort of learning to slow down and and make observations about the environment, about the way the water was flowing and about the weather and the timing and all of these things. And this is just part of the fly fishing experience. You have to slow down, you have to observe. Um, in, in some ways, you feel like a visitor, you know, in a place that this is not your home, this is the home of the wild things that you're visiting. And um, And so there's a sense in fishing like, I can do all these things right. I can apply my skills that I've learned, my experience, but I can't, by my force of will, make the fish be caught. I can't even make it exist there, right? It's mm-hmm. it's a hope that it's there, and it's a hope that I'll be successful. Mm-hmm. But no matter how right I do it, I'm there's a there's a piece of it that's not up to me, and um, so there's that's kind of like a. a countercultural type of posture to be in to where I'm not in control, even though I'm doing the best I can. Mm -hmm. And so then when you are successful and you catch that fish, there's just sort of like a a givenness to that, a a gift, a feeling like you've been given a gift, right? And um, I think that helps to give you a sense of gratitude, um, which... uh, is really rewarding when you spend a lot of time and money to try to to <laughs> seek out uh, the fish. So in the same sabbatical, I was endeavoring to write about engineering. I was in, endeavoring to write about Christian engineering specifically. And it occurred to me that 
you know, fishing and engineering have some similarities in that you can begin by taking in data about your surroundings, mm. about uh, the thing that you want to work on. You um, develop kind of a set of goals or constraints, and then you bring your skills and experience to bear on trying to achieve those goals, right? But that posture that I was talking about with fishing, it occurred to me is kind of the the opposite of how we think about engineering, mm-hmm. where in engineering more it's like here's the, here's the world that I'm in, and I'm trying to affect that world, and I'm going to bring to bear kind of human ingenuity and technology to make the world the way I want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and by sort of the force of my will and my actions, I can make that happen. It's a very different kind of posture that then um, sort of being within a place that you need to be, that you feel like you're a visitor within. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, just kind of reflecting on that, uh, I also reflected on the fact that um, dams, which are sort of this archetypical symbol of civil engineering, mm-hmm. are an example of that, of where we bring to bear our will on the creation, on the environment. It doesn't matter what the rhythms of that place are. We're going to kind of exert our will on it. And um, I wanted to re- kind of talk about that in in my paper. And it, it just so happened that one of the reasons we had to travel to Alaska to find salmon Mm. is that um, all along the Columbian Snake Rivers, uh, which are within an hour of here, where we could have gone salmon fishing, Mm -hmm. um, the salmon aren't doing so well because of those dams. Um, And so it all kind of came full circle to me in in thinking about writing this article. Mm -hmm. And this journey, I'm really curious before we get into dams more and kind of what you kind of what you put together in this essay. you were saying before a conversation that the fly fishing really starred for you in graduate school. Um, is that right? Yeah. Well, this, the desire to fly fish yes, started is, when I was in fourth grade. Oh, okay. Uh, but growing up in the suburbs of Chicago with very few people in my family who had any kind of fishing experience, it was more of a um, sort of a dream of the future romance of fly fishing. Okay, that you were able to kind of start to begin that journey in graduate school, That's right. actually. And I, I guess the reason I was raising that is I was curious for you, these kind of two threads, the kind of the kind of high control profession like engineering and then the almost like no control, like you were saying, that just kind of show up and there's a hope, there's an expectation, but there's no guarantee. There's really not much you can do besides show up and – and be attentive. And even if you are, you may not catch anything. Um, in fly fishing, is there a connection between pursuing those two things? Do you feel like you did, did the engineering come first, that kind of mindset? And you feel like you needed something that was less control or do you feel like the engineering came after you had this initial like romantic longing for fly fishing? I'm just curious about for you personally, how, whether you see those as one's a response to the other or, I've always had both of these impulses within me to kind of seek these things. Uh, Yes to everything, but (laughs) there's a little bit more. Um, So back in, you know, I I said I kind of had this desire to fly fish from a young age and it kind of, the the movie A River Runs Through It came out when I was maybe 10 or 11. Mm -hmm. And that movie is just beautiful in so many ways and really captivated me. And I became obsessed with wanting to go to Montana, which I was never able to do until I was like 35 years old. But Mm. Um, 
So that led to uh, a, a different author uh, named David James Duncan, mm-hmm. who's one of my favorite authors. And um, in high school, I read an article he had written called The War for Norman's River. Mm. And Norman refers to Norman McLean, who wrote River Runs Through It. Mm-hmm. And Norman's River is the Blackfoot River, which is in Montana. And this article was kind of an activist article about a proposed gold mine on the Blackfoot River that would use um, cyanide leach mining as part of its uh, the way it would mine for mm-hmm. gold. Mm-hmm. It's extremely environmentally dam- damaging. And so this article is kind of a protest article about that. And I read it as a high schooler and it really captivated me uh, and kind of was the initial start of my environmental sensibilities. Mm. Um, and so when I went to college and I became a, or I studied civil engineering thinking I wanted to be a structural engineer mm. until I took a structural engineering class and realized I don't actually really like this at all. But at the same time, I was taking an environmental engineering class. Mm. And the combination of taking that class and kind of those seeds that started with Duncan's article kind of combined to say, hey, look, I can use engineering to um, to kind of help the environment or mm-hmm. to help people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt sort of my calling start there. Mm. Um, so in some sense, it went back to that fishing, that original, like I think God put that in me mm-hmm. to desire to be a fisherman. And it took a long time to get there, but that also led me through to environmental engineering and then eventually to here where I teach civil engineering, but also environmental engineering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So all of that to say is, yeah, all of these threads have always been present within me. Kind of this this obsession with the beauty and the romance of fly fishing, and also learning how to use the skills and um, the profession of engineering. Yeah, it's really great to know about um, that essay that inspired you, because in some ways, I feel like with this essay, you're trying your hand at that kind of analysis at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and so here, um, instead of talking about mining. Um, you're looking at the impact of dams on salmon. And um, you're not, I say in that say, you're not anti-dam. You talk about some damming projects being good or useful or at least yeah. being able to do them in a way that's not environmentally harmful. Totally. Um, but you do say there are problems with dams. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what's, what are the problems dam, dams cause for salmon populations? And yeah. also maybe not just the salmon population, but human populations. Sure. Which yeah. is one of the connections you're trying to make in the essay. Definitely. Um, so, yeah, so dams can do a lot of great things uh, for humans and for um, the environment. I mean, we have to start by just saying that, you know, particularly in the Pacific Northwest, we benefit from a lot of electricity from hydropower. And, you know, that in this day and age, that kind of carbon-free electricity is Mm -hmm. a a huge asset. There's nowhere else in the country that quite has what we have. Um, And so in that sense, you could think of it as sort of an environmental benefit. Um, Also, dams can allow, uh, you know, by storing water during wet seasons and and releasing it in the dry season, you can actually maintain ecosystems and environments that would not be able to persist through a dry summer, for example, where there just might not be enough uh, water for fish to survive or the water might get too warm or that sort of thing. Um, on the flip side, uh, at least thinking about the Columbia River dams and the the lower Snake River dams that I talk about in the article, 
Um, there's a few ways that they can impact salmon. Um, so salmon are born in in streams and kind of high elevation or at least up in the rivers, spend some time there before they eventually migrate out to sea. And um, on the way, they're going to encounter a lot of dams if they're born in the Snake River, um, eight of them in particular. Uh, so when they get to the reservoirs behind the dams, those reservoirs warm up relative to what they would, what the water would be if the reservoir wasn't there. Um, and especially in kind of this day and age of climate change, that can it can be so warm that it causes mm-hmm. harm to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, there's a lot of predation that can happen in those of warm water fish that are preying on the juveniles. Um, and also, they just have to spend a lot of energy swimming that they would normally have to just float downriver yeah. with the current. Right. So. All of those things are happening um, to some extent irrespective of what kind of fish passage is built into the dams. So all of these dams have some sort of fish passage built in, a way for some fish to avoid going through the turbines. Mm-hmm. Um, some fish are going to go through the turbines, and some of some of those fish are not going to survive. Um, so there's other ways of kind of getting them around that, but those problems with the reservoirs still persist whether or not you have the passage the salmon eventually, if they make it out all the way out to sea, they're going to spend some years there growing up in the ocean before they head back to where they were born. And on the way, they're going to have to traverse the same dams that they did on the on the way out. Um, and again, there's fish passage built into these eight dams to get them um, up to where you know they want to spawn. But uh, again, it's there's difficulties sometimes of them in navigating through that. There's mortality associated with the fish passage systems. There's predators that know, like seals, that know where the fish need to go to get <laughs> through mm-hmm, the fish passage mm-hmm. systems. So all of those things combine when you're going through eight dams, you have all of those kind of stressors and the some amount of mortality associated with all of them. And now you overlay potentially challenging ocean conditions, predators in the ocean or in the mouth of the Columbia, um, as well as things like toxins and um, logging and so forth that are stressors that are going on already, you have kind of this mix where what's happening with the dams is very significant in terms of the overall survival of the population. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And where where does dam removal fit into this then? Yeah, because so, it's a it's a prospect you raise, and actually one of the interesting things I found in your essay is that like currently like the ratio of dams removed to dams built is in favor of dams removed. Yeah, is, is a, that in the United States? Yeah, is that what those definitely are for? But um, so dam removal is also a very prominent aspect of civil engineering. I I presume right now it's becoming that way. I mean, it hasn't historically been because this sure. tipping point literally happened within the last ten years. Okay, so. In the United States, we have over 90,000 dams. We've built a dam pretty much in most places where there could be one or mm-hmm. that it would be logical to have one. There's one mm-hmm. there. So one of the reasons we're not building many dams anymore is because there's nowhere really else to build sure. them. Yeah. Uh, but um, also because a lot of them are reaching the end of their useful life and we have to decide do we invest in rehabbing them, bringing them up to date, or do we remove them and um and some of the sometimes it's a safety issue where the dam's just not stable anymore and there's you know people downstream that could suffer if it fails 
And so mm. it sometimes is from a cost benefit analysis, just better to remove the dam. Um, but there's also, you know, at least in the West, uh, in the case of the Elwha River up in Washington, which was probably the most significant dam removal project in the United States uh, to, to that date, which was uh, in the last 10, 15 years, a major concern was native people's access to salmon. That was a big part of their culture and their heritage. Um, and those dams were removed um, in part because they weren't generating as much electricity as they originally had, in part because the salmon were suffering, in part because we have treaties and agreements with native peoples that we were trying to make good on. Mm -hmm. So between the Endangered Species Act and these treaties, we took those dams down and the salmon populations that had really suffered um, with them in place have really flourished and recovered. Um, and in the Klamath River Basin now, there's a similar kind of dam removal project that has is already right. un underway, removal of several dams, one of which has already been done. Um, and that will be the largest dam removal project in the history of the world. Um, and that's just, that's literally in our state. Um, so again, there also, there's the, there's a lot of environmental concerns associated with the Klamath river, but native people's access to healthy populations of salmon is a major driver of that project and has been ever since it's be, it was a political flashpoint for the last 30 plus 40 years, conflicts between farmers and irrigators and, um, the tribes, uh, we've known about these issues for a long time. It took a long time to get to this point, mm -hmm. but it's, I think as a, as a civil engineer, as a Christian, as an environmentalist, it's really heartening to see progress being made mm -hmm. in actually like addressing the needs of more than just industry and agriculture, but also of native peoples and of the fish. Right. One of the things you're pushing toward in the essay is not just like a strict cost benefit analysis of how much does it cost to remove the dams, which is quite expensive, not like necessarily just through dam removal, but kind of all the other payments you have to make around that. Um, but versus how much does it cost just to leave it up and maintain it? You're kind of wanting to push this past those like the numbers of like what makes the most money or what costs the least money to thinking more holistically about salmon ecosystems, native peoples, um, all the people who might be affected by this. Um, and that's the thrust of the essay. And you end up kind of, you know, I think you're making a critique of the dams and in some ways in some of their issues. And as I think you said earlier in the conversation, you definitely say in the essay, it's interesting because the dam is kind of the paradigmatic symbol of what civil engineers doing. So I think in some ways to critique a dam is to critique the profession of engineering and you do some of that in the essay. Um, one of the definitions you go to out of a, a, a book on the profession of engineering defines engineering as, quote, the practical study of how to make people and things work better. That's a really broad definition um, that could go a lot of different ways. How do you take issue with some of the ways that definition could go wrong? Yeah, this so yeah, the the practical study of how to make people and things work together better. Um I, I there's a couple of things I mentioned in the essay. For one, um 
and this is maybe a, a minor qualm, but we're talking about salmon, and so where do animals fit into people and things? Are, mm-hmm. are animals really things? Not really. They're kind of something else, right? So how do we treat that versus a rock? That's right. something. Yeah. Um, but a bigger picture issue is, you know, obviously pe- people and things are different. Um, there's human creation and there's non-human creation. Um, but... I think humans need to be constantly reminded that they are part of creation, that mm-hmm. they're creatures. Mm-hmm. Um, and by making this kind of clear distinction between people and things, I think we're making too much of the fact that we're different than creation. And I think this gets into some of some of the theological and philosophical aspects of this of like how do we see ourselves in relation to the rest of right. creation? Um on the one hand, we can see ourselves as creatures, as created things. We're not God. Um, on the other hand, we can see ourselves as above the rest of creation, as the the pinnacle of God's mm-hmm. creation, bearing the image of God. And so, there's some sort of distinction there. Um, you know, it's my it's my sense that uh, human beings have no problem uh, with <laughs> uh, remembering that we're above everything else in creation. And we have this tendency to want to be sort of godlike, mm-hmm. and to make that distinction between us and the rest of creation really clear. And, and, and there's just this, always this drive in that direction. Mm-hmm. That's just part of, I think, our fallen natures, mm-hmm. where I think it takes actual effort to remember that we're not God, and that the distinction between God and us is just as big, if not infinitely greater than the distinction between us and the rest of creation. Right, yeah. And so, you know, as I think about, like, how do we make people and things work together better, and you think about the the issue of dams, you know, we could see ourselves as people and the rivers as things, and how do we work together better with those things? Mm-hmm. Um, one one interpretation of that is what's happened. We we turn the river essentially into a machine that does our bidding, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's operated literally on a minute by minute basis, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year to meet our needs. Mm-hmm. Um, that is uh, one interpretation of people and things working together better. But you know, the native peoples who lost access to their salmon or to people like me who kind of love the salmon and want to mm-hmm. enjoy them and, and can't, um, is that better? You know, who who's the judge of what's better, right? And, and in reality, obviously, you know, society as a whole, politics, government, industry, the, the economy, all of these things work out to decide sort of what's better in mm-hmm. terms of what happens. Um. But in the essay, I talk about uh, Wendell Berry's uh, essay, which I love, called Two Economies, mm-hmm. where he he makes this distinction between what he calls the great economy, which is also synonymous with the kingdom of God, mm-hmm. uh, and the little economy, uh, which is the economy that we operate within, uh, that we need in order to live. Um, and we can't do away with the little economy, but the little economy is uh, short-sighted and it doesn't include all of the things that the great economy includes. The great economy includes 
all the dependencies of mm-hmm. us on salmon, salmon on us, and all of the other biotic and abiotic realities that we cannot conceive of, um, such that like our limited scope cannot conceive of the great economy, cannot conceive of the kingdom of God, which values everything as interconnected and valuable to everything else within the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our little economy operates and moves forward and has us construct these dams for economic reasons, for utilitarian reasons, um, where we may be missing sort of those interdependencies present in the great economy that we mm-hmm. can't conceive of. And as even as engineers, like we're just not there's there we're not taught if it if it would even be possible to conceive of those things we're not taught anywhere close to the kinds of mm-hmm. skills that we would need in order to really appreciate them yeah you go um one of the places you go to is uh in the gospels Jesus' interaction with nicodemus where he tells him you have to be born again right um and and born again sort of spiritually and that's what that's where you get the the um the title for your essay, Born Again Engineering, um, which is, it's quite, and to draw, you know, drawing on Barry as well, for listeners who may not know, Barry's a, a longtime kind of agrarian writer in the United States who lives in Kentucky and farms with a horse and plow and is very much part of this back to the land movement um, that, that's probably more anti-technological than what you're articulating, um, even though I, I don't think he would be as against kind of the vision you're articulating as much as some of his readers might think. Um, I think he's very pragmatic in some ways, but um, coming back to this question of born again engineering and recognizing in some ways how radical what you're calling for is and, and how radical the idea of being born again is, what was it? What would it look like? And maybe what are some of the ways you think about this in the classroom? Um, doing born again engineering, what would that mean? And have you found ways to, to do it as an engineer yourself or with your students? Yeah. So I guess first a little bit about the term uh, born-again engineering. I grew up in the the Reformed tradition where mm. this, this concept of total depravity, um, which refers to not just the fact that human beings are completely sinful, our, our, our minds, our hearts, our wills, our spirits are all tainted by the fall and tainted by sin, but also all of creation is as well, as well as things like um, institutions and economies mm-hmm. and professions. Um, and so that kind of uh, perspective, you know, the the strength of having that doctrine is that everything is also, if everything was created good and everything is tainted by the fall, then everything must be redeemed. Yeah. And um, so when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and you said there's like this spiritual aspect of becoming born again, you know, I see very much that all of creation is in the process of become True. becoming new, you know, yeah. heading all creation groans creation. too. That's kind of a relevant, all creation you know, groans, human and non. And, um, and so born again engineering, I think, fits right into the theology of uh, you know, Revelation 21, where it says, you know, behold, I am making all things new. Yeah. And so I actually see, you know, part of my vocation of as a civil engineer is to say, like, how do I take this thing 
that I do, this thing that I'm in, this profession, and actually try to redeem it. Um, and when I look at these, you know, bad, what I would consider bad engineering, how do I work to make that redeemed? And how do we see those kinds of things? So, so there's all that. But then in terms of like what you were uh, asking about it practically in the classroom or practically how to, what does this look like? Um, one, one way I like to think of it is just, I'll give you a couple examples of tools that engineers might use to, to do this kind of assessment. They might look at a project with a bunch of alternatives and they might weigh all of these alternatives on a bunch of aspects like cost and, uh, logistical difficulties, maybe even like permitting or regulatory things, environmental impact, all of these things. They might score different alternatives on these, all these different metrics, um, and then try to maybe even they weight the different categories to figure out like, well, maybe cost is more expensive on this project than environmental impact. And then they they pick what they consider the optimal alternative based on this kind of rubric. It's called a decision matrix, very common kind of base level decision making tool. But really, I think uh, it kind of objectifies reality in a way that isn't, uh, I think, helpful. Mm-hmm. If you look and see, like, I think it's very easy to see we we are in a crisis of sustainability where the way we've been doing things to now, we might be happy with kind of where we're at right now, but almost everyone agrees the way we're living is not sustainable. Right. Especially if you spend much time actually, like, looking <laughs> at the impacts that we're having. Mm-hmm. And... So you say like, well, the way we've done things before is not going to get us out of this problem. We need to change. So when I think about the decision matrix, and I think about that objectifying um, the environment and environmental impact and saying like, well, there's these trade-offs, right? I, I have a, a cheaper project, but higher environmental mm. impact or or more expensive project, less environmental impact. Oh, well, this, this alternative scores higher, so we'll just have higher environmental impact. I think really where we should start is saying like ethically is that even is that an alternative we should be considering right that's where you start you say is this alternative it doesn't it's not as if we can slide around the environment or that we should be sliding around the environment as if it's like a pot of money or something in a bank account right um it's more like we are part of this environment we we are uh, creatures and we belong in this environment and it's you know though it's been shown by where we've arrived that the wisdom of treating it as if it's just a slider on a scale is uh well it's not wisdom right and we need to do something different and so we start by saying what should we do and then once we decide what should we do now we can address those trade-offs with our technology, with our, um, with all of the skills and resources we have, as opposed to letting those trade-offs dictate the decision we make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's essentially, you're kind of wanting to make sure that we're not just kind of reducing our options to say like, well, what are all the different kind of material options of the place we could go with this project? But actually saying like, no, there are there aren't just like material constraints, they're moral constraints. Right. And it sounds like you're kind of saying that in maybe engineering as a discipline, our culture more broadly, there's been a lack of moral constraint in the kind of 
the economies we've developed, mm-hmm. um, both the little economies and and that's had an impact on the great economies. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you th- and you talk about how engineers need to get to a place? And again, I I think I don't want to make this just about engineering because you're talking about our whole culture. Even though maybe you know engineering is kind of a great way of thinking about what we've come to value as a culture. Um, you said engineers need to think not about the ought. What ought we to do? Um, why do you think that's been historically difficult for the engineering profession or maybe not historically prioritized for the engineering profession? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. I think, you know, the um, this is one of the latent questions, I think, sort of behind the, the movie Oppenheimer that came out a few months right. ago, right? Yeah. It's like centers on an engineer who, um, you know, if he's really giving serious ethical concern to why he's doing what he's doing or what's happening around him, it's not quite clear if he is until it's almost like too late, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, for one, I think it's just human nature uh, that we see limits um, to our power, to our wealth, to our freedom. And we seek to overcome those limits. Um, you know, in one sense, that's sort of the origin of the fall, right? Adam and Eve creatures uh, kind of overreaching their creatureliness and wanting to become godlike. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you see it again in the Tower of Babel or um, you know, Greek mythology with Icarus and sure. flying to Prometheus, hubris in general, fire, yeah. right? So. This is just like the human condition. We see limits, we see barriers, we want to overcome them. We want yeah. to grow in power and freedom and wealth. And so that's not a particularly like engineering focused thing. Um, but I also think like engineering is different in that we are used to looking at um, tools, materials, things like that. and objectifying them to some extent to be look mm. at the, what's their utilitarian value yeah. and also like the whole profession is about overcoming limits it's about yeah. saying there's a gap between what we have and what we want and let's figure out how to get there um so between those two aspects or those three aspects of human nature what we are used to doing as a profession and the fact that we, you know, we reduce a world that's very complex and includes concepts like goodness, truth, and beauty to uh, numbers and equations Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh, dollars, right? And we do that to some extent to make these things uh, fit into our little economy so that Mm -hmm. we can actually accomplish what we're trying to do but it loses it loses the fact that there's these other things in reality um, that are not you can't objectify. Um, so I think all of that is to say, like engineers are taught to overcome boundaries, overcome limits. We mm-hmm. get so used to doing that and thinking that that is our goal that we rarely stop to think like, should I overcome this limit? Is this you know, should I harness the power of this river by building this dam mm-hmm. as a, as opposed to saying like, I, I can do that and it will add value, you know, value to human beings. So let's do it. Um, 
I do think like it's also worth noting that a lot of engineers will probably listen to this and say like engineers don't make these decisions, you know, managers make these decisions mm-hmm. or policymakers yeah. make these right. decisions. We're just like peons and you know, we just we just run the numbers, we just figure out yeah. the details and I just it's been my experience in industry and that that's just not at all what really happens that mm-hmm. that most of the time there are times when things get completely taken out of engineers hands but most of the time people are trusting us to tell them what we sh- what they should do mm-hmm. and that includes considerations they might not have thought of of the environment or of people right and so you know, if an engineer recommends a certain alternative, usually that alternative is what the person, the manager, the the decision maker is going to go with. Not always, but uh, that's why I'm speaking to engineers because even though ultimately they might not have the deciding power, they're doing all the work that feeds into those decisions. Mm-hmm. And a lot of policymakers and managers are former engineers. So they then kind of grow right. into that position yeah. where they have that authority. I like that point a lot because I think you're drawing attention to the agency engineers or like if we generalize this, like we all have an agency in these processes um, of these economies to some extent at some point, maybe not tons. Um, but it's also making the point that you can't just like postpone moral questions toward like the end of the process, but that the process in and of itself from the start is morally freighted, like the decisions engineers are making as they're putting together a project proposal and assessing a situation and deciding what you value. Those are moral and and the moral things aren't just something that's saved for a manager at a later point, right? So this, it's not value neutral, um, in the way that, um, maybe sometimes, uh, data is sometimes presented, um, as being kind of value neutral, like there are choices made kind of throughout the process. I think one of the challenges to the kind of moral vision you have for engineering or, again, for our broader society, um, which is really data-driven in a lot of ways, um, or maybe a challenge if we go back to the example of big technologies like Oppenheimer and nuclear power or right now like Artificial intelligence is a really big kind of technological field where there's a tension between let's slow down or let's speed up. Let's just do it. Let's figure out how powerful we can make it, right? Um, As we're recording this, this is kind of, uh, you know, a week or so ago, there was all the drama about the open AI CEO and was he going to stay in and was or not. Um, And I think that was very much a tension between people who wanted to slow down versus people who wanted to speed up. Um, And there's a lot of incentive in our culture toward speed. Um, This is obviously a factor in climate change as well in terms of like, well, how do we like, what time do we actually have to kind of um, change our trajectory? Um, So how do you, how do you um, resist some of those uh, inertias of, trying to do things fast or even the need or the urgency um, that some projects or some activities demand when really a lot of what I hear you saying and what fly fishing would seem to kind of indicate is like, well, what we need to do is slow down if we're going to actually kind of recognize the moral um, nature of the activities we're undertaking. Yeah. So 
I threw a lot at you. Yeah, there, no, it's, but it's I think we're getting to like the we're 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 uh, we're casting for the big fish at totally. this point in the conversation. Totally. Um, yeah, I mean, I mentioned to you, I just finished reading The Old Man in the Sea, right? Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. Hem, in it, Hemingway, it's like the point is the reason this guy catches this m- massive fish, but he he doesn't get it home is because he even says, I went too far out, mm. right? I got, basically, I got greedy. I went too far out. I caught the big fish, but by the time he gets back to shore, spoiler alert, the sharks have like totally destroyed the fish and he almost dies on the way. And I think, I mean, it's kind of the same idea here, right? It's like AI is like this massive fish, right? We're like, this can just solve all our problems, right? Like, you know, even today, my you go to log into your computer and Microsoft is trying to tell me on the little like ad on this beautiful picture of the Amazon rainforest that, AI is going to save the rainforest or something. Mm-hmm. Like, what the heck are they talking? You know, they're obviously they're trying to like, in some way, like greenwash whatever yeah. ills AI might somehow <laughs> befall us. I mean, it can do really great things. It has a lot of power. So do dams. Um, and yeah. not all dams are bad, right? But we all know, we all can see this technology and imagine. And in fact, it's been imagined many, many times in you know, sci-fi <laughs> literature that like bad things are going to happen, mm-hmm. right? We all know it, it, it's going to. And yet we kind of plunge forward because we think, yeah, well, good things are going to happen too, right? It's going to make my life easier. It's going to solve these these problems. Maybe it's going to save the rainforest or whatever. Um, but I think, you know, <laughs> ultim- the ultimate question is like, why, right? Like, why are we doing this? And um, this gets like really philosophical and, and ultimately I'm not going to change how the world thinks about this, but like, this is a human heart thing and a value thing of, you know, what are we at really chasing after in, in life? Is mm-hmm. it really efficiency? You know, it is, is, um, a more efficient transportation network built on AI that gets me to work in 20 minutes versus 30 minutes. Is that going to finally make me happy is that gonna Mm -hmm. like give me what my heart desires Mm -hmm. um you know i would argue no um and so the pursuit of those things that are really not central to what uh kind of what our hearts are after Mm -hmm. is i think it's just misguided and it's dangerous and i think some of it comes from just not really recognizing again like that we're creatures, that we belong in the world and of the world. We're not separate and apart from it, and we're not ultimately in control of everything, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think it's just, it's just, if you think about it, we have the ability to imagine the future, but we really don't have control over it, but we're always seeking to control it mm-hmm. in our future. Mm-hmm. And if there's some technology that gives the promise of that, it becomes, you know, again, back to human nature, virtually impossible for humans to restrain themselves. Right. But nevertheless, we should still talk about trying to, <laughs> to mm-hmm. do that mm-hmm. because I think in some ways, like I think of this similar to like the Sabbath, right. In the Bible, right. Like, um, 
I could work on the Sabbath, the Israelites could have worked through the Sabbath year and been more pro- productive and generated more more wealth. But the whole idea of it is it's not it wasn't just a, a command, it was a gift. Right. It was saying, like, look, if you willingly restrain yourself, you will be rewarded. It's a gift. Right. And um and I think that's, you know, the same with I, I try to tell my students the same thing. It's like, yeah, we give you a ton of work in engineering and it's super hard. And the temptation is just to work through, you know, you're gonna work on Sundays. <laughs> but like if you don't and you set that habit now, that could continue for the rest of your life. And think about the gift that would be to not actually work on the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Um and I think there's, you know, there's there's other times where you can see that in the Bible too, where like the size of Gideon's army or whatever, where it's like, sure, if you restrain yourself, you'll see that you're not actually in control, that God is the one who's going to save you. And um, and so I think like, you know, this gets waxing very philosophical, but when we look at AI and the specter of this thing that we know is going to be problematic, mm-hmm. obviously I think we should be extremely like, cautious and um really be thinking about the all of the ethical and moral ways that this is going to go wrong and and the ways that people are going to use this in 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 ways that are just um contrary to how we should be using them as human beings um so i don't know if that answers your question or not but it talks about it a little bit yeah and you, and you pose another question which i think is a useful one of like that question of what are we after here um, you know, and, and can efficiency be the sole thing we're after? And, and you're very clearly saying no. I appreciate you bringing up the Sabbath. It reminds me, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Abraham Heschel's book, The Sabbath, um, Jewish philosopher in the 20th century. But he says, you know, during most of the week, we obsess about space. Um, not space as in outer space, but just space more conceptually. But on the Sabbath, we remember time. Um, and I think that's, so for me, something I'm taking away, whether it's thinking about the Sabbath or fly fishing um, or what have you, whatever it is that kind of helps you helps us slow down and for you reconnect with creation, reconnect with God um, as a way of returning us to this moral center um, from which we can navigate um, a world that really is always wanting us to go full speed ahead. Mm -hmm. So um, Ben, I appreciate the self critique. I appreciate the focus on the theology of creation Um, And I appreciate you sharing some of your passion about going out and fishing. So thank you for coming on the show today. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much, Jay. Yep. This video podcast is a production of George Fox Digital. To find more material like this, you can subscribe to George Fox Talks on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Our team really appreciates your feedback in the form of likes, comments, and reviews. And we'd really love to hear what you think. To sign up for our weekly email list and to keep up to date with the latest episodes and publications, you can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.